Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Road to Emmaus, What Happened on the Way? It's based on the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 8th, 2011. In his book, The Mind's Eye, Oliver Sacks explores how the plasticity of the human brain compensates for different types of blindness. As in his previous books, like Musicophilia, Sacks weaves together clinical anecdotes from his practice as a neurologist, letters he's received, scientific studies, memoirs by blind people, and the results of brain imaging techniques. His longest chapter includes entries from his personal journal about his own experience of ocular melanoma. Sachs explains how people can be blind in different ways and for different reasons, from birth defect, accident, injury, or disease. Lillian, for example, developed visual agnosia late in life. She could recognize the tiniest letters on an eye doctor's chart but couldn't read words or music, even though she was a famous pianist. People with what's called object agnosia can't recognize common objects like their own car, even though their visual acuity is normal. Sachs himself has prosopognosia, the inability to recognize faces. And people with deep blindness lose even their interior mental images. In Luke 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus suffered from blindness. They talked about Jesus, recalling who he was and what he had done the preceding three years. They even talked to Jesus, who walked with them for seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Nonetheless, we read in Luke 24:16, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. They thought that Jesus was a political liberator, clueless that in him God had reconciled to himself all things. Colossians chapter 1. The story is a disturbing reminder of how we remain oblivious to God's presence, even when he's right beside us. Jesus rebuked the two travelers as foolish and slow of heart. And so in church on Sundays, we rightly confess our sins and blindness from human weakness, ignorance, laziness, and especially in that wonderful line, from my own deliberate fault. The Emmaus disciples were blinded by their mistaken ex expectations about what God was doing in Jesus. The relentless and powerful lies of culture blind us to God's presence. Our family of origin shapes us in ways known and unknown, both good and bad. Geography shapes us by the power of place, in church by appeals to a divine authority. For many years I was blind to an empirical truth that's as obvious as the nose on my face, namely that there are millions of gay Christians who confess Jesus as Lord, love God's people, and serve his church. The gay teenage son of my pastor taught me this many years ago. I'm just sorry it took so long to learn the lesson. 
Later, the transgendering teenager of other church friends further opened my eyes. Finally, one Sunday in church while I was taking the Eucharist, I experienced an acute sense of several gay people near me who were making our ancient Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. In that Eucharistic moment, in that act of celebrating the Lord's Supper with gay believers, my eyes were open. Who was I to judge the conscience of a fellow human being? How could I doubt the authenticity or integrity of another person's confession of faith? My mind kept returning to the spiritual counsel of the 4th century desert father, Moses. Never judge your neighbor at all, in any way, whatever. The Emmaus story is a Eucharist story. Luke 24.30 says that Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. These words are identical to all, are identical to all three accounts of the Last Supper. It was precisely when Jesus broke the bread that their eyes were opened, a detail that Luke repeats a second time. In 24.35 he writes, Then the two told the other disciples what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by him when he broke the bread. In her memoir, Take This Bread, Sarah Miles describes herself as a blue state secular intellectual, a lesbian, and a left-wing journal journalist who had developed habits of deep skepticism from covering revolutionary movements in Central America. Her parents were actively hostile to religion. But about ten years ago, Miles walked into St. Gregory Episcopal Church in San Francisco, partook of the Eucharist, and experienced a radical conversion. Before then, she had never heard a gospel reading, never said the Lord's Prayer, and never and knew only one person who went to church. Today, Sarah Miles is on the staff at St. Gregory and author of a follow-up memoir, Jesus Freak, Feeding, Healing, Raising the Dead. Some of our blind spots are funny and forgivable, but many others are tragic. Not every blindness experiences a cure. In the documentary film Blind Spot, Traddle Junga explains how, when she was 22 years old, she was chosen by complete coincidence and chance from a typing competition to become Hitler's secretary. Late in life, she became deeply disturbed that she had participated in the Nazi horrors at such close quarters and had remained so apolitical. And so, in a painful catharsis of self-analysis, she describes her blind spot at remaining so oblivious to the obvious. Clearly wanting to unburden herself and to speak publicly for the first time in her life, the movie was taken from 10 hours of interviews that Junga gave at the age of 81, only months before she died. The Greek word Eucharisto means to give thanks. This is what Jesus did in the first Last Supper. He took bread gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And thanksgiving is precisely what Paul remembers and recommends to us. When he had given thanks, 
1 Corinthians 11, 22, 23, and 24. In the ancient and apostolic act of the Eucharist, we thank God for his presence in the bread and wine. We thank God for his mighty acts throughout history, for his culminating act in Jesus, and for his ongoing acts in our own lives today. We break the bread for our own brokenness and thank God for our neighbor who is making the same confession right beside us. For it is my neighbor who can encourage me in my brokenness and help me to identify my blind spots. Luke ends his story with good news. When the disciples started Sunday morning on their journey to Emmaus, 24.16 says their eyes were presented from recognizing Jesus. The day ended with a Eucharistic dinner when Luke 24.35 says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. May it be so for us today. For books this week, I review Peter Rogers and Susan Leal, Running Out of Water, The Looming Crisis and Solutions to Conserve Our Most Precious Resource. New York, Paul Grave Macmillan, 2010. The book is 245 pages. Peter Rogers, a professor of environmental engineering at Harvard, and Susan Leal, the former general manager of the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, sound the alarm for the collision course that the world is on regarding the increasing demand and finite supply of water. In the last hundred years, the world's population has increased threefold, while the demand for water has increased sixfold. And unlike oil, there is no substitute for water. What makes their book so compelling, though, is not the note of fear, but of hope. For most of their focus is on case studies in which stakeholders have taken positive actions to make significant differences. The Orange County, California Water District, for example, has instituted an award-winning program of recycling sewer water. St. Petersburg, the first city to use recycled water for irrigation back in 1976, has a cash for grass program, as does dry and dusty Las Vegas. As a result, southern Nevada used 26 billion gallons less water in 2009 than it did back in 2002, and that was despite a population increase of 400,000 during that span. Agriculture, the biggest user and waster of water, also boasts positive examples, like modern irrigation systems in Nebraska, or a system of buying and selling water interests in Australia. Technological innovation, consumer education, and public political support have all combined to upgrade aging and sewer sanitation systems in San Francisco, Brazil, and Pakistan leading to better environmental practices, basic sanitation, and public health. 
In one of the more complicated chapters, Rogers and Leal explore economic theories to consider the complex task of placing a value on water. In Boston, for example, from 1986 to 2009, the price of water increased tenfold, while the demand for water dropped 35%. One entire chapter illustrates how the, how the fat, oil, and grease from restaurants clog public sewers, but can also be turned into biodiesel fuel. The same is true of the 1.5 million pounds of chicken blood that flow from foster farms every single week. Another chapter explores the complicated problems of transboundary conflicts over rivers. For over 4,000 years of human settlement, the Nile River has meandered 4,000 miles across what are now 10 countries. How does one parse the conflicts between upstream and downstream users over navigation, fishing, pollution, and especially diversion and withdrawals from dams? And in a final chapter, the authors consider the phenomenon of bottled water. The good news in all of this, insists Rogers and Leal, is that creative alternatives and best practices already exist. The collision course is avoidable. Peter Rogers and Susan Leal. The title of the book, Running Out of Water. For film this week, I review The King's Speech. I resisted watching this film for the longest time. A period piece about a monarch's speech impediment? After I watched it, though, I agreed that it fully deserved the four Oscars that it won, including Best Picture and Best Actor by Colin Firth. What makes this film so interesting is the collision of the deeply personal, the explicitly political, and the necessarily technological. When his brother abdicates the throne to pursue an older divorced woman, the younger Bertie reluctantly assumes the throne as King George VI, despite a horrible stutter. A renegade speech therapist named Lionel Logue, who became a close confidant of King George for the remainder of his life, helped George to give the speech of his life when England declared war on Hitler. Only a few years later, the speech could have been pre-recorded, but at the time, the state of technology required that it be made live to the British Empire's 58 subject nations around the world. And just one footnote. For a BBC recording <coughs> of the actual speech, you can go to bbc.co.uk and listen to King George VI actual speech. And for springtime Easter poetry, we've posted a poem by Mary Ann Bernard. The title is Resurrection. Long, long, long ago, way before this winter's snow first fell upon these weathered fields, I used to sit and watch and feel and dream of how the spring would be when through the winter's stormy sea she'd raise her green and growing head, her warmth would resurrect the dead. 
Long before this winter's snow, I dreamt of this day's sunny glow, and thought somehow my pain would pass with winter's pain, and peace like grass would simply grow. But the pain's not gone. It's still as cold and hard and long as lonely pain has ever been. It cuts so deep and fear within. Long before this winter's snow, I ran from pain, looked high and low for some fast way to get around its hurt and cold. I'd have found, if I had looked at what was there, that things don't follow fast or fair, that life goes on and times do change, and grass does grow despite life's pains. Long before this winter's snow, I thought that this day's sunny glow the smiling children and growing things and flowers bright were brought by spring. Now I know the sun does shine, that children smile, and from the dark cold grime a flower comes. It groans yet sings, and through its pain its peace begins. Mary Ann Bernard. The title of the poem is Resurrection. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 8th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.